You're listening to a Richwood Church podcast. Well, this is a, an interesting time to, to be alive, to put it mildly. And as followers of Jesus, you are presented with very difficult spiritual choices on a daily basis. And usually those choices come down to a very simple equation. Are you going to serve yourself or will you choose to serve God? And sometimes the temptation to serve self is just really overwhelming. But that's what Daniel was facing. His life was threatened and now he needed to make a choice. And we'll see that he remained faithful. This morning we're going to continue to explore his decision-making process. And then next week we'll see the price he paid for that. But through it all, we'll also get a glimpse of a very faithful God. And so as you watch David navigate these decisions, why don't you ask yourself these questions? Who is my first love? Am I willing to make the hard choices to make God the number one thing in my life? And am I willing to give up the idols in my life that might be blocking my relationship with him? And I guess in short, what I'm asking you is, who will you bow down to? What will you bow down to? Because that's a choice that we all must make. And so let's take a look at the Bible. If you have a Bible, if you have a tablet or a phone or something like that, just open to Daniel 3, beginning in verse 1. If you want to grab that Bible in the, the pew in front of you there, you'll see it on page 739. Daniel 3, beginning in verse 1. And as we study the life of Daniel, which was marked by his faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to him, we've seen so far that Daniel was deported to Babylon from Judah, which is in southern Israel. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian empire, had a vast territory, but he subjugated Judah as well. And so he took the brightest and the best with him to Babylon. And these teenage boys that we get a glimpse of in this story were assimilated by the king. At least that was his plan. So he first offered food from Babylon. But Daniel said, no, that's, that would defile us. And he changed their names, again, trying to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. But even through standing strong in his faith, Daniel was promoted and earned favor from the king. And then in chapter 2, the king had a troublesome dream. And no one could interpret it. Even the wise men of the day, the, the enchanters, the, the sorcerers, because really Nebuchadnezzar was asking the impossible. He was saying, before you interpret the dream, I want you to recite it back to me. And they all looked at him like, are you crazy? Can't, we don't know what you, your dream was. But guess what? Daniel did. And so the king became enamored with the power behind Daniel. And he declared that the God of Israel is the Lord of kings. But sadly, that fixation with the power of God would not last. And that brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. He goes from being enamored with the power of God to being enamored with himself. 
And so the question would be, would all those around him remain faithful to God, or would they bow to him? And that goes to you and I too. Where do our true allegiances lie? What are we really committed to? So now to verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And I'll explain all of those cubits and all that in just a minute. But what we really see happening here is the conflict in this story is ratcheting way up because this massive image, this massive statue that Babylon was now seeing that Nebuchadnezzar built symbolizes the kingdom of the world. Daniel and his friends represent God's kingdom. And so we have this contrast now and this question, would God's creation bow to that which was created by man? Would those who are created in God's image and who represent the kingdom of God bow to that which was created by man and honored a man only? And the the pressure to walk the cultural line must have been intense. But then again, these were the representatives of God. And for representatives of God, it's never, you know, to a place where you're in step with culture. You're always going to feel like you're not at home. You're always going to feel like you're just a little off from the flow because you represent God. And so Nebuchadnezzar built this 90-foot monstrosity to himself in the middle of the desert. And so just to give you some kind of an idea how big this, I was kind of looking for images. This is an image of the famous Christ the Redeemer statue on Mount Coricado in Rio. And many of you are familiar with this. It's, it's huge. And this is actually 98 feet from this viewing area to the top. That's only eight foot taller than this thing that Nebuchadnezzar built. And so it was massive. And many theologians believe that the reason he built this thing was in response to the dream. Because in Daniel's interpretation, there was this image of a statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And let's just look quickly at Daniel chapter 2, 31 through 33, just to remind ourselves what Daniel saw. He said, you saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, and middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its pretty, its, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And so you'll remember last week we just took a look quickly at what this image might have looked like and how it was parsed out. Up here in the gold, the gold head, we have the, the kingdom of Babylon, which was the most powerful in the world at the time. And then the, the Medes and this Persian dynasty was powerful too, but not as powerful. So you have silver. And then the Greeks came along. And they had this whole middle ground here because they were a massive kingdom. And then Rome were these legs of iron because they took kingdoms and just squashed them. But what we see then in this dream that's not on this particular slide is we see a rock that was not hewn by human hands that symbolizes Christ who will crush it all. 
And so what's Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's, I think, proclaiming that, no, no. No, that's not going to happen. My kingdom is the greatest kingdom. And those that gathered here apparently were selling out their soul for, for life, really. And this kingdom that seems so big, this kingdom that seems so impossible would be crushed one day by the kingdom of God, by the kingdom of Christ. And so, you know, you don't have to live in fear of what's happening around the world because you are a citizen of heaven. And so you can just keep your eyes on Christ and you can ride out all the good, bad, and the ugly of what's happening around us in our world. But the question of the moment for Daniel and the others was this, who or what would they bow down to because they were created in God's image. Now you have this huge idol. Well, we see the pressure really becomes intense here. And we look who the king invited to the party and what they were expected to do. If you look at verses 2 through 6. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And in verse 3, I can just parse this out a little bit for you. The satraps, they were the chief representatives of the king. That's kind of like his cabinet. That's what we would see it as today. The prefects were the military commanders. The governors, who were civil administrators. The counselors were simply counselors to those in government. The treasurers had the funds. The justices, the administrators of the law. The magistrates actually enforced the law. And all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nation and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, which is an instrument like a stringed instrument, harp, big pipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And so here we see that Nebuchadnezzar was really leaving no choice in the matter. It, it was literally this. It was literally bow or die. Bow to the idol or sacrifice your life. And so the question then becomes, what decision would Daniel make? Would the boys remain faithful? Because that's all they were was just boys, teenage boys. And you have to come back next week to find out. You could also read the Bible and find out. But these kids had been put in a, in a terrible position. I mean, it's hard enough to, to walk in, in, in the power of God, but now when you're facing death for that decision, and this, this furnace was likely not something the king just put together for executions. He was probably using an industrial furnace of the day or something like that, these things could burn up to 2,300 degrees Fahrenheit. You got put in one of those things, it was over. And so here they were, having to make this difficult decision. And it's probably in our lifetime unlikely that God will call us to either follow Him or die, but what He will call us to is 
what is your first love? And I want to be your first love because he knows what's best for you. And so as you make decisions about where your allegiances lie and who you're going to bow down to, it'll be in all areas of life. It'll be who you choose as friends and what you'll do with your money. Making decisions about how to raise kids or how to spend retirement years, who you marry, where you live, what you'll set your eyes on, what you allow into your mind, all of these things, and how you choose jobs and homes and a church all come down to this question. Where are my allegiances? Who do I trust? Who am I going to bow down to? What is my purpose in life? And these are the the big questions that this text cries out at us because this is really the decision that's being made. And all the while, Satan will be right there trying to convince you that you have the best knowledge of what you should do with your life, that you know better than God. And that's Satan's big lie and his big game. And that's what he did to Adam and Eve. I mean, he shows up in the garden. They're living in this paradise. And somehow he convinces them that God wasn't giving them all that he should. And, wow, they bought the lie. And they bowed to an image. They bowed to themselves. And the results were were catastrophic. Satan is playing the same game. And we understand that these very young men in a foreign culture would likely lose their lives if they didn't bow down to this massive thing. But they had courage. And sometimes, you know, living the Christian life just takes courage. It takes courage to stand up for what you believe. It takes courage to stand strong against the wiles of the enemy so as God's representatives, Daniel and his friends would be forced to decide, are we going to bow to this idol? And just kind of, you know, they could convince themselves very easily, well, we should just bow and then go on, and then we can have our ministry. But I don't know if that's what they're going to do. And, and you have to make those same decisions every day. Who and what will you give your life to? Who will you give your mind to, your heart to? And this, spec- this section really speaks to what we really think is important, what we really love, what we're really devoted to. And this is what Daniel is dealing with. It's interesting, too, that Nebuchadnezzar had just declared that Daniel's God was the king of all gods until he decided to build a 90-foot structure to himself. And so he wanted people to worship him. And in many ways, the choices that we've discussed today reveal the truth about what's in the heart of each of us. While outwardly praising God, the king remained devoted to self-worship. And I don't know about you, but the, the biggest enemy to my faith is not other people. It's not circumstances. It's not the world we live in. It's my own heart. It's my own sin problem. And if I try to change circumstances, guess what? My sin problem comes with me. And so i got to deal with that. But self-worship is a disaster. One minute we experience a spiritual high, the next moment we're right back to where we started. So look at verse 7 for a moment, because this illustrates what must have been an emotional and moving moment in the life of Babylon. 
It must have been a fantastic ceremony. It had to be very moving. But the problem is it was misplaced and fake. Verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigen, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So this was a, a very big deal. I, I liken it to an inauguration for President of the United States. Everybody who was anybody was in attendance. All of the influential leaders were there. The best instruments, the best instrumentalists. It must have been spectacular and moving. But given the fact that if you didn't do it, you were going to be killed, it was a little bit contrived. But yet, it seemed on the outside to be very real. And you and I have to be careful not to make the mistake of, of switching devotion to an emotional experience and mistaking it for devotion to God. Because it's not the same thing. Many churches today, worship has too often become about aesthetics. It's become about emotion. But really what worship is about the object of who we're worshiping. And here this was all contrived by someone. And so if you look at John 4.23, Jesus actually deals with this problem. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now, I don't know about you, but as time goes on, and as things kind of ratchet up in our own nation, this verse becomes more and more real. And I ask the question, who are the true worshipers? Who are they? And then the question, am I a true worshiper? Because... Again, my heart is desperately wicked according to Scripture. But those who had gathered here apparently had sold their soul. And Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans, and it fits really perfectly with our culture. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, our culture really hasn't advanced much beyond this. Because the people in Babylon had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men. And we do the same thing all the time if we're not careful. There are many that have had some great religious experience, but they, they, they mistake it for transformation of the heart. And the only way a heart can be transformed is when it is subjected to Jesus Christ, when it is given to Jesus when one believes that Jesus is the Son of God who came from heaven to minister and die for sin and rise again and to understand that you are a sinner and I am a sinner 
and to ask forgiveness for that sin and then receive forgiveness in faith and ask God to be in control of your life, then true life transformation can happen. And for some people, they can, just, they can go to that moment when their lives changed immediately and there was a spiritual, incredible movement, an earthquake, and others don't have those magical stories to tell. But it's about faith. It's about who you're going to bow to. That's when transformation really happens. It's not about aesthetics. It's not about drama. It's about a heart that is given to Christ. Now, this is really an interesting day because not very often does the 4th of July land right on a Sunday. And so it's an interesting contrast and dilemma because what we're going to do is we're going to spend the rest of the weekend celebrating our country, which is very, very appropriate. But what I wanted to do this morning is just take a moment and just lift up the cross of Christ. And listen, I love the United States. I, I tear up at the national anthem. I have incredible thankfulness for our freedom. I deeply respect those who fought to keep us free. And that was even deepened. An uncle of mine passed away a couple of months ago. We were digging through his things, and we found this picture of him. And he's standing alone. He's probably 18 or 19. He's standing alone, guarding the gates of Dachau. And I thought, wow, they are the greatest generation. And I have deep respect for that. But what I don't want to do is confuse my love for America with my love for Christ. I don't want to confuse my allegiances. Because for me, and for any believer of Jesus, it's the cross first. Always. Respect the flag. Be thankful for the flag. Be thankful for our country. But, but follow Jesus. Because God's kingdom will last forever. And when we leave here, then we will celebrate. So I just want to lift up the cross of Jesus Christ before you. Because that's when true transformation happens. And following Jesus is about discipleship. It's about committing. It's about trusting. It's about making a decision regarding who I will follow. And so I want to ask you a question now. After seeing those created by God give themselves in worship to a man-made idol, after watching the king express awe toward Daniel's God, then turn around and build an idol to himself, which forced a decision now by Daniel and his friends, I want to ask you the simple question that I've been drilling down to all morning, and that is, who and what will you bow down to? Who will you give your life to? Will you finally say yes to God? Will you say yes to God and no to the things that you know are wrong in your life? Will you stop blaming others for your sin and just deal with it and, just, and, and know that your heart is going to lead you astray and so it will bring you to places you don't want to be? Will you stop placing your hopes and dreams in others? Stop placing them in your spouse and your children and your friends and honor God and bow to Him and trust Him? 
Will you stop playing church? Will you take it seriously? Will you interact with other believers as a sacred act of sacrifice and commitment? Because this is a way that we can honor God. This is a way that we can bow to Him. And will you stop for a moment today, if you have not, and give your life to Jesus and trust and believe? At the very least, will you say, I'm committing myself again to you this morning, God. Because if you're like me, I can think of about a million things to say I'm sorry for right now. And this is a time that we can do that. Maybe your words are in agreement with the psalmist who wrote this beautiful verse. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. When you are willing to say those words, then you have made your decision. You have chosen who you're going to bow down to. The Lord of lords. The King of kings. The one who loves you with an everlasting love. You see, that idol, the things of the world, they have no power. They have no lasting influence. God is eternal. He'll love you eternally. And so what I want you to do just now in the quietness of your own heart, bow your head. In your quietness of your spirit, And tell him who you have chosen to bow to. And then I will lead us to the Lord's table. Thank you for joining us on the Ridgewood Church Podcast. For more faith-based resources or information about Ridgewood Church, visit us at myrwc.org.